Uh, if you've been around the church for any length of time, uh, you've undoubtedly experienced some level of disunity, uh, if not like outright fighting or arguing or separation. Uh, church splits, that kind of stuff. Uh, I was listening uh, to an interview recently with Russell Moore. Russell Moore's a pastor and author, and I, I think he's now like the editor of Christianity Today magazine. Uh, and he was talking about growing up as the grandson of a preacher and was talking about how his grandmother would take him to church, you know, every time the doors were open. Uh, except, as a kid, he recognized that they did not go to church on the first Wednesday of every month. And so later in life, he asked his grandmother, why did we never go on the first Wednesday of every month? And she said, well, that's when the monthly church business meeting was. And um, I didn't want you to see that because I wanted you to be a Christian. <laughs> and some of you, some of you know what that's all about. You've been in those kinds of like church business meetings before, and you've seen people uh, in the church act the fool. Um, and so I was thinking about that this week, uh, and it's, it's true. Like there can be an alarming lack of unity in some churches. And it's amazing how people who are gathered under the banner of Christ, how they can behave sometimes towards brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, there's a church history book that I, I love and I talk about it often. It's one of my favorites. It's called The Democratization of American Christianity. It's a real nerdy title. But uh, in that book, the author, Nathan Hatch, he tracks the rise of denominationalism in America after the American Revolution. Um, because prior to the American Revolution, there are really only like a handful of Christian groups in America. There are Roman Catholics, there are Presbyterians, there are Episcopalians, there are Baptists, there are Congregationalists who are like the descendants of the Puritan pilgrims, um, there are Lutherans, there are Quakers, you know, that's, that's just like six or seven groups. Um, maybe there's a couple more, but there really just are not many Christian groups before the American Revolution. But by the beginning, the early part of the 1800s, that number starts to uh, blossom to the point where today, by some counts, there are somewhere in the realm of 30 to 45,000 Christian denominations in America. Now, Granted, within that number of 30 to 45,000 Christian denominations, there are some groups that are not Orthodox Christians. There are some groups that um, do not believe Jesus is the Messiah, who are not Trinitarian in their disposition. So they would not be groups that would historically be thought of as Christian. But for like a sociologist looking at those groups today, if they on any level claim some kind of connection to Jesus, they are thought of as Christian groups. But even if you took all of those groups out, it's still a, an enormous number of Christian denominations in America today. Um, I grew up in the Southern Baptist Church, which is the largest Baptist denomination in America. But I, I was thinking this week of just some other Baptist groups and made me wonder, well, how many Baptist groups are there? And so I looked it up. And uh, if you will indulge me, 
There are at least 55 national Baptist denominational groups. There's the American Baptist Association, the American Baptist Churches in the USA, the Association of Reformed Baptist Churches of America, the Association of Welcoming and Affirming Baptists, the Baptist Bible Fellowship International, the Baptist Missionary Association of America, the Central Baptist Association, the Christian Unity Baptist Association, Conservative Baptist Association of America, Continental Baptist Churches, Converge, formerly the Baptist General Conference, the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship, the Enterprise Association of Regular Baptists, Free Will Baptists, Full Gospel Baptist Church Fellowship, Fundamental Baptist Fellowship Association, Fundamental Baptist Fellowship of America, General Association of Baptists, General Six Principal Baptists, Independent Baptist Church of America, Independent Baptist Fellowship International, Independent Baptist Fellowship of North America, Institutional Missionary Baptist Conference of America, Interstate and Foreign Landmark Missionary Baptist Association, Landmark Baptists, Liberty Baptist Fellowship, National Association of Free Will Baptists, National Baptist Convention of America Incorporated, National Baptist Convention USA Incorporated, National Baptist Evangelical Life and Soul Saving Assembly of the USA, National Missionary Baptist Convention of America, National Primitive Baptist Convention of the USA, North American Baptist Conference, Old Regular Baptist, Primitive Baptist, Progressive National Baptist Convention, Reformed Baptist, Regular Baptist, Separate Baptist, Separate Baptist in Christ, Seventh-day Baptist General Conference, Southern Baptist Convention, Southwide Baptist Fellowship, Sovereign Grace Baptist, Two Seed in the Spirit Predestinatarian Baptist, United American Free Will Baptist Church, United American Free Will Baptist Conference, United Baptist World Baptist Fellowship. Wow. That's amazing, right? Like, and, and again, all of those groups are not Orthodox Christian groups, um, but many of them are, and that's just one particular, like, denominational, like, identity. Like, these are all groups that are identifying as being Baptist in some way, and you can tease that out among all of the denominations, Methodists, the Lutherans, Presbyterians, and on and on and on, and you will find a list like that. And, and it is kind of incredible. And that's not to say that there wasn't good reason for some of those groups separating, right? Like, like when you go back and you actually look at the history of some of those groups, uh, there were Baptists that believed that owning other people was perfectly fine, and there were Baptists who did not believe that was fine. And so all of a sudden you have the Northern Baptist Convention and the Southern Baptist Convention, who, by the way, thought slavery was okay um, and apologized for it, uh, like within the last 20 years. Um, and I'm fairly convinced there are some Southern Baptists who still uh, uh, do not think that's okay. Um, I'm joking, guys. Um, <laughs> But, but yeah, like if you just kind of walk through all of that, you've got groups who thought we should only read the King James Bible, for example, because they opened to the front page of the King James Bible and they saw that it said the authorized version and they thought that meant authorized by God, uh, like, auth like an authorized English translation by God, as if God had like called the publisher and said, I'm okay with this one, guys. Like, no, it was authorized by King James the first, but, but they read that and they didn't understand that that's what that meant, so they separated from other people. Uh, there were Baptists who believed that, uh, they, they're called landmark Baptists, they, they believed that basically uh, their Baptist churches, any churches that identify as landmark Baptist churches, are the only real churches. Um, so even other Baptist churches that are not landmark Baptist churches are not real churches, and certainly any other denominational churches are not actual real churches. Only them. There were Baptists who believed that we should be engaging in uh, mission work overseas, and there were Baptists 
Baptists who didn't. And so you have like missionary Baptist churches. They, I mean, just there are all kinds of reasons why people have separated over the years. I mean, it really is astounding. It's even more astounding, potentially, when we consider our text this week, in which Jesus prays for unity in the church. Today, he's going to pray for the unity of his disciples following his crucifixion, that they would be, quote, one. But then next week, we'll see that he prays for the unity of the future church, all of those who will come to one day come to follow Christ. And, and I would include us in the future church that Jesus is praying for. He prays that we would be one as well. And so in light of everything we've just considered, turn with me to John 17 this morning, and I want to start reading uh, in verse 6 today. John 17. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything you've given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me. And they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they believe that you sent me. I am praying for them. Not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours." All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you in these things I speak in the world that they may have that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. This is the word of the Lord. Jesus prays, Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. So here are the big questions I want to explore today as we walk through this text, and these will have bearing into next week as well. First, what does Jesus mean by one? When he prays that they be one, what does he mean? Um, we hear that, and we immediately hear unity, that they would be united, but is that what he's really talking about here? And if so, are Jesus' prayers not effective? Right? Because when we look at the landscape of the church, not only today, but throughout the great bulk of church history, uh, it has never been the bastion, a bastion of unity, right? Like there have always been problems all the way back to the time of the apostles, there was disagreement. So, so what's going on here? Let's start in verse 6. Look with me. Jesus prays, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything you have given me is from you. 
For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. You know, the word word is really important here in John's gospel. I mean, John began this whole book by saying that Jesus is the divine word, or in the Greek, the logos, the divine logos. And throughout this account, Jesus, who is the word, has been declaring his word to people, right? But to add a layer to that, Jesus says about his words that they are not his own, but rather they've been given to him by the Father. So Jesus, who is the word, has been declaring his word, but his word is really the Father's word. So not only is Jesus the word who declares the word of God, but there is also an emphasis on the people who hear his word, either keeping or not keeping his word. And keeping the word seems to be defined as believing that it is true. That's another word that just comes up over and over again throughout John, that word belief, believing. So keeping the word of Christ and belief in Christ seem to be synonymous because much of the word that Jesus has been declaring has been about his identity, has it not? Think about the most famous verse in this whole gospel, John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. I mean, there's so many claims that are crammed into that one sentence. Um, One is that God loves the world. Like, God doesn't hate the world. Um, God doesn't just want to wipe everything, you know, clean and or kind of like shake the checkerboard and start all over. No, God loves the world. That Greek word is cosmos, meaning he loves the creation. Just like when you go back to Genesis, when he makes it, he looks at it and he says that it's good. He has affection for it. And, and even though it has devolved into sin and brokenness, God still loves the world, Jesus tells us. He tells us that God gave his own son. And in the context of John 3, Jesus is saying, that's me. I am the son who has been sent by the father to be this manifestation of God's love to the world. This evidence of God's love to the world is that his only son has been sent and has come. Belief in the truth of his identity, which has been defined not simply as intellectual assent, but but also as obedient action, will grant one eternal life. Whoever believes shall not perish but have eternal life. And that doesn't just mean saying, no, I, I, think, I think something is true, but actually responding as if it is reality. So that's an example of the word of Christ. Keeping that word in the context of Jesus' disciples looked like them not simply espousing it or parroting it back, but living as if it was true. And also, I would add, living as if Jesus had authority over them. Living as if Jesus had authority to, like, command them. So so when he says something like, follow me, they respond to him as one who holds authority over them, and they leave their normal everyday lives, and they literally follow him. One thing I would add here, though, is that the disciples do not believe perfectly, do they? They don't believe perfectly. I think we've seen them maybe grow in belief, 
And Jesus insinuates here um, in our text today that they have come to know in truth that I came from you. In other words, I, I feel like Jesus is describing a process of growth. They have come to it. In Matthew, Jesus talks about how one's faith could even be as small as like a mustard seed, you know, like this just minute, just almost um, uh, you can't even see it. It's so small. But but what we see is that if one responds to the word of Christ as if it's true, even if that person's faith is very small and imperfect, one can grow in faith. Yet Jesus also knows that within a few hours of praying this prayer, that the guys, these disciples who are listening to him, are going to abandon him, and one of them is going to very publicly deny him, going to very publicly, you could say, betray him. Isn't that amazing? So the personal ability of the disciples to have faith and to exercise faith, or to keep the faith, as it were, is not the whole story either. Like them being able to muster up the ability to somehow stay in the faith. So Jesus prays in verse 11, Holy Father, keep them in your name. That, that word that gets translated as keep, I think literally means like guard, like guard them in your name. But Jesus prays this because he's leaving them. He also says in verse 12, while I was with them, I kept them. I kept them in your name. I guarded them in your name. So this whole time, God, through Christ, has been keeping them in faith. In other words, their being in Christ, yes, is connected to their faith, their belief in his identity and their obedient action. But without God's action, none of it is possible because they don't believe nor have the capacity to believe perfectly in and of themselves. Here's how Paul puts this in Ephesians 2. You can turn there if you'd like to. Ephesians 2, Paul says, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love, there's that word again, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. 
So Jesus calls his disciples to believe, to have faith, but outside of God's action, even that is impossible because, as Paul just said, the ability to even have faith is a gift from him. And even then, God's power is required to like keep them in faith. Jesus, knowing that Peter would publicly deny him, says this interesting thing in Luke 22. He says to Peter, uh, this is uh, verses 31 and 32 of Luke 22. He says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that you might be sifted like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. So Peter has faith in Christ. But Peter's own power to, like, maintain his faith is not enough. He doesn't have some supernatural ability in and of himself to maintain his faith. Jesus prays to the Father that he would act to keep Peter in faith, to keep his faith from not failing. Jesus then also tells him that he would deny him. So on one hand, Jesus says, I have prayed to the Father to keep your faith from failing, and oh, by the way, you're going to deny me three times. So apparently Peter's denial of Jesus does not constitute a loss of faith for Peter. God seemingly perseveres Peter in faith despite his sin. Which is great news for you and me, right? Right? That, that, that God helps him to persevere in his faith in spite of his sin. If we have faith in Christ, that faith did not simply come from us and our good decisions, and we do not remain in that faith through simply our personal ability to keep it perfectly. No, God is acting to gift us with faith and to keep us in faith. This is why Hebrews calls Jesus the author and perfecter of our faith. He gives us faith and will over time bring us to a place of perfection in the ages to come. As Paul said, so that he can show the immeasurable riches of his grace. Now, one caveat here. While the Father gives faith and keeps us in faith, like this isn't some situation where because of my sin, it, if I was in the faith, that I could lose it and then come back into it and lose it again and come back into it. There are those out there who think something like that to be true, and it really can be devastating because it then becomes all about me and like my ability to somehow do this perfectly. While the Father gives faith and keeps us in faith, that does not mean, though, that we do not have to earnestly pursue obedience. You still have to be responsible to honor the gift that God has given to you and to honor him through seeking obedience. That, I think, is what James means when he says that faith without works is dead. If you claim to be a person of faith, but just live however you want to live, seeking only to please yourself because you think that you have no level of responsibility to pursue faithfulness to Christ, then James says the faith that you claim is not real faith. Right? What did Paul say just a moment ago in Ephesians? Like, we are his workmanship. Like, we have been created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he has prepared beforehand for us to walk in. He, he 
has stuff for us to do. And because of this work of salvation, this work of regeneration that he is doing in us through faith in Christ, like he is creating us for this good work that he's prepared for for us. When Peter denies Jesus, he doesn't say, oh, well, you know, God's going to keep me in the faith. No, no, no. Luke says he went out and wept bitterly. Like he is deeply convicted and deeply disappointed at what he has done. So how, how does all of this relate to unity? Go back to verse 11 in our text. Jesus prays, and I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, meaning the disciples, the community of believers around Jesus. And I am coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. Jesus prays to the Father that he would keep them in faith, secure them in faith, guard them in faith, and that they would be one in the same way that Jesus and the Father are one. In other words, Jesus isn't imploring God to help his followers just get along here. He's praying to the Father to act to create this oneness. And to this end, I think that Jesus is talking about something that's far bigger and deeper than surface level unity. This is about more than agreeing on doctrine or proverbially like holding hands around the world with other believers. This is about something deeper uh, than just getting along with other Christians. Jesus, I, I think, is describing this like mystical oneness that is reflective of the union between him and the Father. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are not united because they get along or because they agree on all things. They are united because they are one. They are literally one. And this goes all the way back to the Old Testament, all the way back to what's known as the Shema, Hero Israel, the Lord our God. The Lord is one. There are no other gods. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Jesus is praying, let my followers be one in the same way, Father, that you and I are one. The Greek word for one that Jesus uses here doesn't imply casual agreement among parties. It implies a likeness, like a sameness. And through Christ's death and resurrection, those who have faith are graciously invited into this union, this oneness. Now, you can take that too far, and a lot of people do and have throughout the centuries. You can take that oneness too far and say, well, that means we become God, or that means we become other gods, or some stuff like that. But that doesn't in any way agree with the rest of Scripture. One of the keys to interpreting scripture is whenever a text is cloudy or murky or we feel like, does this mean what I think it means? You, you look around and you find other passages of scripture that are clear and you interpret it based on the passages that are clear. And at no point is scripture making the case that we become God or we become other gods, but that we become like 
him. And we experience this oneness that is akin to what Jesus experiences with the Father. We don't experience it perfectly now, I don't believe. I think this will come in the age to come, and we will be perfected in the age to come. And um, there are a few ways that Scripture talks about this. Um, We become a part of his family. That's one of the ways that this is framed. Through Christ, we ultimately come to look like we belong in the family, I think. Paul, in multiple places, couches this in the language of adoption. Uh, Like in Ephesians 1, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus. Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Paul goes on to say that we are, in, we are now a part of God's family. Those of us who have faith in Ephesians 2 and in Romans 8, he says we've, we've been released from like this spirit of slavery and we have now received a spirit of adoption, capital S spirit, the spirit of adoption. Um, Paul seems to believe in Ephesians 1 that the Holy Spirit is like the guarantee of this union. Like the Holy Spirit's indwelling presence in our life is the seal that we have been adopted into God's family through faith in Christ. Another metaphor for this is the language of the body of Christ. We aren't just members of like a Jesus club. When Jesus says believe, he's not just inviting us to like sign a form or something like that, but rather somehow through faith in Christ, we become a part of his body. Again, that implies a likeness, not agreement. It it implies becoming coming like him. We are no longer outsiders. We've been integrated into his very body. Another metaphor scripture uses is that of being an heir to the father. This is in Romans 8 again. Paul says, for all who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. Again, there's that spirit language. If the spirit is in me, if I'm being led by the spirit, um, I'm sealed. That's the mark. I'm a son of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father, this intimate daddy, like this intimate name for God. Um, The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. And, And we could go on. The point is this. The true church of Christ is already one. The true church of Christ is already one because it is we are brought together and held together by the work of God through Christ. This is what we are espousing, by the way, every week. When we read the Nicene Creed and say that we believe in one holy Catholic church. 
And uh, for those of you who grew up in the Catholic Church or who are new to the Nicene Creed, you may wonder, what in the world is that language about? We talk about it often. We're not talking about the Roman Catholic Church there. The Roman Catholic Church didn't even exist when the Creed was written. There was really only one church at that point in time, one kind of worldwide church. And so the Creed uses the word Catholic in the purest sense, which is to say universal. We believe that Christ, through his death and resurrection, has brought together and is bringing together one body who are, are not one um, because they agree on every point of doctrine or because they're geographically close or because they inhabit the same social strata or uh, socioeconomic level or because they never sin or something like that, but because the object of their faith is Christ alone. And so the real question is, is this a body, is this a family that you are a part of today? Have you responded to Christ in faith? Have you placed your faith in him? Have you followed him in baptism? Are you taking steps of obedience, however imperfectly? If the answer is no, or if the answer is I, I don't know, Listen, I think Jesus is calling out to you in the same way through through his scripture, through the power of the spirit, in the same way he called out to his disciples in the scripture to say, follow me, follow me, repent and believe this good news, this good news that God loves the creation and that God desires for us to follow his son in faith. And if that's you today, if you're going, man, I don't know where I stand on that stuff. I would love to pray with you. I'd love to talk with you. I'll be out here after the service. I'd love to just chat with you about that. Next week, we're going to continue this talk of unity. As Jesus prays for the future church, all those who will come to believe in him through the ministry of the apostles. And, and, and now with this foundation, like this foundation of this divine unity, this oneness in and through faith in Christ, we'll ask, but if all this is true, how should we live in the here and now? And to what extent should we pursue agreement and surface unity with other Christians? We're going to dig into all of that this week. As for now, let's go to God in prayer. Let's thank him for the truth of his word. Let's thank him for what he has done for us through Christ. Father, we give you praise and glory for your word. We thank you, God. Uh, and we pray that through your spirit, you will interpret uh, your truth into our minds and hearts, God. Uh, give us an awareness, uh, Lord, of where we stand in light of the gospel. I pray, God, that you would draw uh, any here who are not followers of you, that you would draw them to salvation, Father, and that they would um, follow you in obedience, God, that they would seek how in, ever, in, in whatever way, Father, however small it may seem, God, that they would take steps towards you today. Pray, God, that you would uh, continue to grow and shape us and to help us become more and more like Jesus. And that we as a people would not just give you lip service, but that we truly would seek to glorify you and honor you um, through pursuing you and your will. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Stand with us.